Welcome to episode 77C. Today, the authors of From Equity Insights to Action talk about why equity and multilinguals go hand in hand. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Because we are teachers of multilinguals, equity must be at the heart of our work. Because of this pandemic, we can no longer look away from these glaring inequities, but to change them can be overwhelming. In this book, Dr. Andrew Hogginsfeld, Dr. Maria G. Dove, Dr. Audrey Cohen, Dr. Carrie McDermott Goldman, and Claribel Gonzalez share not only the pressing need for equity in education, but how we can together work to help support multilinguals and their families to have an equitable learning experience. Now, on to today's podcast. You can't see my screen right now, but I have five just amazing ladies in front of me. I feel like I'm one of the luckiest guys today to have such an esteemed panel of colleagues and experts in the field. Welcome back, Dr. Andrea Hagensfeld and Dr. Maria Dove. You are one of the two most frequent guests on the podcast. Uh, Dr. Cohen, I have loved you from afar from many, many books. So it's so great to finally have you here, as well as your colleague, Dr. Carrie McDermott, as well as your new uh, colleague, Gabri- uh, Bell Gonzalez. So these are just a panel of amazing contributors to our newest book in the field. It has been waiting for you to write it. So welcome to the podcast. So we'll start with the first question of, um, can two of you share with us a story about uh, when you worked with a student and equity came up in that story, and then how has that story stayed with you to this day? I'll let anyone talk. Well, it's not about one student, it's really about many students. When I began my career, and I've shared this with my colleagues quite often, when I began my career, the focus was always on remediation and intervention. And what I noticed and what I reflect on is the growing gap that always happened. No matter how hard I worked, no matter how hard the students worked, it always ended up being a watered down curriculum. And we knew that the students would never really achieve age and grade expectations or even exceed age and grade expectations. So I think that that story informed both my work over the years and certainly that of my colleagues. Yeah, we keep on hearing about students not uh, getting or students receiving watered-down education because they have this pobrecito experience for them, and it's so sad. And pobrecito uh, really is a horrible way to experience education. So Dr. Andrew Hagensfeld. I'd like to piggyback on what Audrey just said, and one of our favorite mottos is that you can't remediate what you haven't built yet. So when we think about multilingual learners, we want to take an asset-based approach, a strength-based approach, and focus on what they have, what they can do, rather than looking for gaps, um, learning slides or learning losses, COVID slides, any of these frequently cited new terminology that we want to fight against with this book and with our work, because we want to recognize so much learning has taken place during COVID and every day before and after COVID too, and focus on the strengths and those can-do indicators and perspectives regarding our multilingual learners. After doing about 100 podcasts, that's like the one theme. The Dr. Douglas Fisher said, uh, teachers' perceptions can become students' realities. 
right? And we know that marginalized students often are perceived with a limited perspective. And so there, that becomes their limited reality. And we know, working with so many multilinguals, that they are, they are capable of so, so much. So let's talk about your book. What was the seed? Every single book has a seed. And what was the seed of this book? Maybe I could share a couple of seeds. One of them was when we listened to President Barack Obama's one of many speeches in which he talked about how the inequities have always been there, but the pandemic pulled the curtain back. And now we can all see those inequities with a little bit more clarity. And that line just stayed with me. And I thought, well, we have to really write about the inequities related to multilingual learners. The second seed came from an amazing Indian novelist, Arundhati Roy, who wrote an essay in The Atlantic in the early days of the pandemic. And I have a short quote, if you allow me to read it, because it's so powerful, you can't really paraphrase what she had to say. So this is what she said. Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our data banks at dead ideas, or dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. And when I read that short quote, actually the whole essay, which is, um, over 10, 15 pages long, but this sentence, this paragraph stayed with me so powerfully that it became one of our anchor metaphors for the entire book. So when I shared with my colleagues that we need to write about how we envision, how we imagine another world for our multilingual learners and how we can walk through and this portal and leave things behind, and fight for a new world, a more equitable world for our multilingual learners. Everybody was on board. We all got excited. And that's how this book was born. At least that's my memory of it. Maybe some of you have a different kind of memory. So by all means, please share. That's how I remember the, the seed or the birth of this book or the idea behind the book. I agree with everything that planted those seeds. But I also want to mention that we also were making the connections with the teacher educators. As students were going through their models and learning how to be in a classroom, they were exposed to so many new things as the pand pandemic unfolded. And these were all things that we needed to kind of address with our students. And as we're sending our students out into the field to be ENL teachers, English, you know, working with our English learners, multilingual learners, they were faced with things that were new and some things were so deep seated in what has always been the case that we wanted to start to really change that narrative. And we were able to, to start that ball rolling. And this book really brought all of those things together in a way that we could really impact what students were doing in the field and as they become teachers and pulling in the voices of teachers that are out there. And we really wanted to just make those changes as we move forward. I feel like I'm a, at best on my best days, like a C minus teacher. And that's because I'm trying to re undo the things that I've learned in my past. And it's, it's, and this is not a denigration against my teachers or our teachers in the past. It's they, they did the best at the best they could at that time, because that was the, that was the limitation of the research at that time. But now that we know better, we can do better. Just like Dr. Maya Angelou said, when we know better and we do better, and you're helping us do so much better. Yeah, you know, uh, piggybacking on, on that, Tan, it, it reminds me of why we also wrote this book, examining why we're still doing things that we were doing in the past. You know, it's a matter of the the pandemic opened our eyes to so many things that we were still doing that weren't effective. So we knew what to do, but making that shift to from, you know, the practice we've always uh, been used to, to new practices is it's a tremendous leap. 
So, but the pandemic really pushed us along that continuum. And I think what we want uh, with this book is to support uh, educators to continue moving forward, don't stand still and examine, continually examine your practices and see if they're still effective. And if not, change them. I think there's a Greek philosopher that said, an unexamined life does not, is, not, is a life not worth living. Right. Unexamined life is a life not worth living. And so you're really helping us examine our practice. I think the, the quote that holds education back the most is, we've always done it this way. Right. And now the pandemic is an opportunity for us to say, wait. I know that Dr. Angier Hoggensberg loves to say this. We're, we're not going back to normal. We're going to a better normal. We're creating a better normal. And you're helping us do that. This podcast is going to be great already. I can just tell. So let's go to the first chapter. Um, so why should every educator read this book? As we hinted at it earlier, in this book, we want to challenge the notions of a learning loss or a pandemic slowdown or a COVID slide. And we adamantly argue for creating a more equitable, um, positive, reaffirming, and reassuring kind of learning environment for our multilingual learners. We also invite our readers to, as you said, challenge the notions of going back to normal and accepting any kind of pre-pandemic curricular or instructional practices or inequities as well. That's how we've always done this. This is a pivotal moment in our personal and professional lives to re-examine what our past practices and beliefs were and how to create better protocols and more equitable learning opportunities for all students. And finally, we also want to challenge the notion of defining our multilingual learners by labels that limit them, that could describe them as struggling readers or struggling writers or at-risk students or slow students or low students, any of those hurtful, deficit-oriented, or even damage-oriented um, um, labels and mindsets will have to go. So we invite our readers to join us on this journey and embrace four key equity strategies. And those are to amplify the talents, spirits, and personal powers of our multilingual learners, to recalibrate the curriculum to accelerate learning for our multilingual learners, to teach and assess, to build student autonomy, agency, and resilience, and the last one is to harness the power of connections and relationships. These four strategies or practices are not presented in a particular rank order at all. We could address these um, current realities from any of these four angles. And my colleagues and I will share more about what we mean by these four strategies in a moment. Okay, so let's move on to chapter two. Uh, can you please talk about multilingual consciousness and how it is a pathway to equity? So, Tan, I'm so glad you asked that question. And a few minutes ago, you used the term examining. And that's what we did in this book. We really started to examine how multilingual consciousness on the part of teachers is the pathway to equity. And what does that mean? That means having intentional, authentic perceptions by teachers about what the students bring to school. That could be a range of linguistic experiences. It could be a specific language pattern. It could even be a register. But the idea behind our writing is that no matter what gifts the students bring, they should be viewed positively and shared. And we encourage teachers throughout the book to think of the many languages that are in their classroom, but also envision the rich learning opportunities that can come from using these full linguistic repertoires, especially as they speak with the students, write with the students, read and listen, ask the students to listen. So we think that this is a pathway to equity. And we're very excited to really give you some examples of that as we talk further today. And one way we can see consciousness and equity, the easiest way is to see, look at the walls of our schools. How many schools have English-only zone signs? Right? And so that's something we could talk about later. But let's talk about chapter three. How can we calibrate our curriculum to make it more equitable? Well, Tan, you know, if we were to visit 
100 different programs for uh, English learners, multilingual learners, we would find 100 different types of program models and curricula that's in place. You know, we really have to think about what is worth teaching and knowing of, and who is making the decisions about what's being taught. You know, from social media, I often read on, uh, you know, Twitter or Facebook, uh, teachers asking for curricula for newcomers. And, you know, ultimately there are, there are people who have favorites with prepackaged material and, uh, you know, those that require uh, teachers to teach non-academic subje subjects to focus on basic uh, skills of language and literacy. And in many respects, these type of, you know, set curricula don't really um, reach the students that teachers are, are ultimately teaching. So we look at a standardized curriculum and how it suffers from really the outdated notion that it serves all students. And so what can we do? So we can develop and implement curricula that meaningfully integrate the history and culture of all students. So that means that these two ideas are so essential for equitable learning opportunities. And also it draws students in to learning when they can connect to what's being learned. We also think about how we can um, develop equitable assessment practices. So students and teachers together need to work collaboratively to define expectations for success and how success can be demonstrated. Um, any curriculum should provide multiple pathways to the same destination. And that's what this chapter is really about, how we could go about reaching all students uh, in all different uh, situations. And that really takes a lot of work and it needs, and the curriculum always has to be fluid, always changing to meet those needs. And we also, as has been mentioned before, replace the mindset of remediation and deficit, deficit thinking. You know, uh, they are students, uh, multilingual learners are not empty vessels because they don't speak English. And unfortunately, sometimes teachers approach them as such. Uh, we need to acknowledge that they have a rich store of information uh, and as and as such, co-create teachers and students together, co-create authentic curricula that's relevant, rigorous, and reflect the lived experiences of all students. I think you're channeling uh, the legendary Rigi Routman when she says, "Start with the student and not the curriculum." Right? And we really are saying, like, let's let's wait. What does the student already know? How can we bring that into the school? How can we uh, add that to the curriculum and let that be the curriculum and not just the one that's been given out by our state? So yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, I'd just like to connect to what Maria was saying. You know, in my work with um, educators, you know, a lot has happened. And I think it's, it's really um, helped them focus specifically on what to be able to do with the students. Um, I think, you know, when I was in the classroom, you had to, you had a, a pacing guide, right? Or you had a sequence and everything, you know, you had to follow it step by step. So as Andrea mentioned earlier, you know, the COVID pandemic really turned the world upside down, but really pushed educational leaders and educators in the classroom to really analyze what the curriculum was looking like and what they needed to cut off. I remember having conversations with teachers and they'd be like, oh my gosh, how are we going to squeeze all of this information in this amount of time? It was impossible. And so, um, you know, what Maria was talking about in this chapter, really, it's timely because I think, you know, educators are going back and we don't want to go back to how things were, right? We want to be able to adapt, analyze, critically think about what we're doing. Um, and that includes curriculum, right? Are we giving students opportunities to be able to demonstrate what they know? And are we uh, looking at what success is, just like Maria was talking about? Are we redefining it, um, including uh, project-based opportunities for them to be able to thrive 
and include their culture and their interest uh, within. So it's ver a very timely chapter. I can tell a book is coming out of you, Clarabelle. A, a book is in the making for you. Let's move on to chapter four. How do we design instruction to develop student autonomy, agency, and resilience? Before we share some practical strategies and ideas, let's define what agency, autonomy, and resilience mean in our context. These terms, these phrases, concepts have been used more frequently than ever before because of the COVID crisis. So agency for multilingual learners is their ability to take an active role in defining their own short-term and long-term academic, linguistic, and personal goals. And many of our students know how to do this. It's, it does not mean that we're gonna leave them to their own devices, especially in the middle of a crisis or allowing them to sink or swim without any guidance or feel overwhelmed by the many choices that are out there for their own learning. It is just the opposite. It's encouraging them to take charge of their own learning, which is closely connected to autonomy. So during the pandemic, we were expecting many of our students to figure out their own ways to use technology, to manage their own time. They developed independence beyond what they were required to do during the uh, pre-pandemic times in their education. So continuing to nurture that autonomy and allowing them, inviting them to respond to their own academic, linguistic, and personal challenges as they apply their many, many talents, special skills, their knowledge and understanding of the world. And finally, resilience is something that um, most multilingual learners and immigrant families, children of immigrants, they live a reality in which resilience is the key to their survival. It's a key to their um, opportunity to thrive in a new society. So resilience in terms of in our book, um, we defined it as multilingual learners ability to learn to manage adverse academic, social, linguistic, and personal experiences and develop their own coping strategies, whatever challenges or obstacles they must face in the classroom, outside of classroom and definitely during a crisis as we live through now. So what are some really powerful strategies? There are many, many that we share in this chapter. So I'll start with a few and I'm going to invite my colleagues if you wanted to jump in and add and expand upon what I'm sharing. That would be really wonderful. First and foremost, let's nurture our relationships with our multilingual learners and make sure that every single day they feel genuinely cared for and supported in a holistic way that we care about their academic, linguistic, and social emotional growth. And that's what this chapter unpacks systematically, how to integrate teaching, learning, and assessment in a fair and equitable way that invites students' academic, linguistic, and social emotional development. And in this context, we also have to value our students' personal and shared stories and experiences. So we create an environment in which learning is driven by the students' curiosity, their passion, their interests. So how we achieve success with this type of teaching and learning is to offer multiple meaningful choices and pathways for learning, for using meaningful resources and materials, and for inviting our students to co-create their instructional learning, their instructional materials, and um, participate in authentic real world tasks. I know when uh, teachers are reading this information or hearing this information, it sounds so overwhelming. And part of the issue is that teachers of multilingual learners often work a lot in isolation. You know, they do a lot of the heavy lifting on their own. So what we are really emphasizing here is that you can't do this on your own. You really have to collaborate with teachers in order to, to make this work. And it is work, and we recognize that, that it is work. But once the work is done, once that collaborative uh, network is formed, and that's the work, forming the collaborative network to get that support to get the work done, once that's in place, then this can really work well. 
Um, if that is not in place, this is going to be a very difficult task for any one person to do. Because it's about a system. If we're trying to change, like inequities exist within systems and systems don't change by just one person. It requires an entire community. As we move towards more equitable practices, there are two helpful tips that we have to add on to what Andre Marie had said. One is tapping into the student's home language as a bridge. And the second one I think is very, very important to recognize the student's identities and of course acknowledge their rich linguistic heritages. But it's not just what teachers think they know about a culture but what the students share about their culture. And for me, that was the greatest takeaway in working on this book. So you, you, you don't know this, but I just uh, interviewed uh, Dr. Helene Marshall, and she's an expert on SLIFE. And she said, listen, with SLIFE kids, there are two things you need to know when we shape instruction. We have to, there is a continuum. And instead of asking kids to come to our side of the continuum of formal education, she said, we need to come closer to them. And she said on their side of formal, informal education, it's dis distinguished by two things, relational and relevant. Everything is learned as a community member, thinking about like we learn to weave from our elders and we learn to weave which is a relevant task so that it can be part of a community. So we can contribute from a young age right away to the community. And really what, and then she's saying on the other end, our spectrum is decontextualized task, where it's just task for the individual, it's individual accountability. And really what you're, I just love what all three of you have said so far. It's about saying, let's connect to students' lives. Um, it kind of leads us into the, into the fifth question. Um, I just wanted to mention um, that I also think that those pieces are the relationships and how we really connect to our students. And it reminds me of a time when I was in the classroom and I actually created safe space for my students where we would pull down the shades and really talk about their experiences and what they have been through. And it really gave great insight into many of the things that students did in school, how they functioned throughout the day, how they interacted with their peers, the things that they said to others. Um, and I can remember things like I would give them you know, snacks and things like that. And they would kind of tuck them away because they just didn't have an opportunity at other times in their lives to really be able to, to have certain things available to them. And so it really was very eye-opening. And in some cases, when there were other teachers that they trusted, sometimes those teachers would come in during those times. And it became a community that really wrapped their arms around the students. And that became such a pivotal piece of what we do with our kids. And really getting to know them and digging deep into who they are really gives us more asset in the classroom where we're able to reach them in ways that we never knew we could. And every scenario is very different, but it just gives us a playing field where we know more about them and then they have an opportunity to know more about us. And that just creates such, a, such an important and pivotal piece in what they do and how successful they become. Could you talk about, uh, would you want to say more about the role of SEL in your book? Sure, absolutely. So SEL is very important as we think about the emotional impact on our student having to do with everything. Uh, as we move away from this pandemic into a fresh new beginning, we're really thinking about how we get to know our students, how we build those relationships and really build those structures into what we're doing by getting to know them, creating that foundational piece and really communicating, not just one-to-one, -one, but how we develop those relationships and those emotional pieces to what they do with one another, their peers, how we interact with our students, how they interact with us and the greater community. So when we think about you know, weaving into our community, we have to really consider what are those pieces? What are our students bringing to the table? How can we enhance their skills and enhance what they do to, to drive their success? And how does it impact 
on the greater influence of what happens around them, not just within the school, within the classroom, but on the greater broader sense in the community. And those social emotional pieces really bring together things like mindfulness practices, they bring together how the safety and security of the classroom really and the school building really impact what we do with our students. It also talks about um, how we develop supportive structures within what we're doing in our classroom that meet them where they're at, but also honor who they are as people. We want to honor our kids and we want to help them develop in ways that maybe they never knew that they could, but we always had the confidence that they could. And we give them that, that place to really develop those areas where they can shine. And the more we allow our students to shine and be part of that educational environment, they start to just blossom before our eyes. And that's really how we can impact their lives moving forward and really the greater community. And so that's really bringing all of these things together, the relationships that we develop with our kids, really listening to who they are and getting to know at their heart who they are is really what we need to do as teachers. And that kind of levels the playing field a little bit more. Dr. Geneva Gay, uh, so she created the term uh, culturally responsive instruction. Right? And so there was a person who interviewed her and said, why did you choose the word responsive? And she said, to be responsive, you have to listen attentively. And that's what you just said, Dr. McDermott, about like, we have to listen to our students first to really understand where they're coming from and then work from there. And it goes back to what Maria said and Andrea said and, and Audrey said about uh, starting with the student and not just uh, being driven by the curriculum. Yeah. Is there anything else we, we should talk about before we go to the, the structure of the book or the illustrations? Something that I just wanted to quickly add is that something that I really appreciate about this book is that added layer of SEL. Um, you know, as a staff developer, a, you know, instructional coach, you're always looking at all of these different books and there are wonderful frameworks out there. But I think that to be able to grab onto second language acquisition, focusing on multilingual learners, but then adding that layer of social and emotional support makes the difference. And so, you know, in thinking about going back, you know, we have teachers that are starting, you know, in my area pretty soon. Just like you said, to be able to focus not on just a checklist of, oh my gosh, I have to get through this lesson or I have to do this unit. It's like slowing, you know, going into it and starting slow to go really fast later on, right? Um, and I think it's also really important to think about those students that have been doing remote instruction for a year and a half and are having to come back into these, um, you know, the brick and mortar school to be able to go back and, and have discussions with the teacher and the students is going to be very different uh, for students, but also for adults. Um, so taking all of these things into consideration um, is imperative to be able to push these students forward in their academic success. I agree with Clarabelle, and I think that the pieces that we're pulling together and we think about social emotional learning, we're all coming to this in a very different place. We're not the same people we were prior to, and we are not the same people as we come into this new year. And our students are the same, you know, like we definitely have to think about where our students are as well as they come into our into our classrooms and this is a new beginning this is a fresh start for all of us and as we think about this social emotional piece and what clarabelle was mentioning it gives us time to pause it gives us time to reflect and that is what i believe has also been a pivotal piece in the last year and a half is that it's given us that time specifically to pause and reflect on our practice but it's also given us time to take a moment to see what's happening in front of us and what's happened behind us and how we can look forward with a fresh, clear set of eyes to say, this needs to be different. We need to focus on our kids and we also need to take pause for ourselves because we also need that time. So it's about our social emotional well-being in addition to our students' 
social emotional well-being and that pause is critical to us moving forward prior to the pandemic there was already an emerging body of literature around trauma-informed education or students with interrupted or formal interrupted or limited formal education now the pandemic we might conclude has brought us to a point where everyone has been impacted by the trauma of this crisis so we all need to be aware of on one level or another how we have both suffered through difficult times and survived and even thrived in this in these times and every single child is to some degree a student with interrupted formal education because of the disruptions that one way or another the um, pandemic has caused. So that's one more, or actually two more strong arguments why we cannot compromise on integrating social emotional learning into our everyday practice as, as my friends and colleagues have just identified that. And also just to recognize that our students have stories to tell. They actually lived through history. A hundred years later, they're gonna be talking about the, this COVID pandemic, the way we still talk about the 1918 Spanish flu, which is of course, mis, there's a misnomer there, but that's how we know the 1918 crisis. So we have to recognize that these are historic times that we have lived through and be able to focus on that, but at the same time, focus on the future. Where are we going once this is all over? Since you quoted Maya Angelou earlier, Tan, another powerful saying that she has is that every storm runs out of rain eventually. I misquoted a little bit. It was an approximation, but we could look up the exact quote. It's just very powerful that sooner or later, we are going to have this pandemic behind us but moving forward, we cannot compromise on equitable instruction and assessment practices for all of our students. So I, it's such an honor to also invite Clariva Gonzalez to be part of this project. And her illustrations are so much more than powerful images and pictures. She has added a very unique dimension to this book. And I can't wait to hear more about her thinking of how these all came about. Well, thank you so much, Andrea. And I want to thank the whole team for taking a risk. And I and I shared this with the team before. I think that you know when it comes to images, especially when when we're thinking about professional development books, they're hardly ever there. <laughs> so I think that you know this is so awesome to be able to connect um, with authors that are willing to take that risk of infusing uh, different approaches to be able to analyze this book from. Um, so I, I just want to thank you for that. Well, I have to thank you because when I, I love, I love all your books when you write, I can tell it's always written uh, by you because there's always a structure, like a repeating structure. And like after the first chapter, I'm like, oh, I know what the next chapter is going to be like. It's going to start with a metaphor. And so every single chapter was, had a little cherry, a sweet cherry of like a visual which was created by you, Karibelik. So could you tell us about that process and your process? Absolutely, yeah. So my, my entry into this, you know, world of English language learners is, a, is very different. So I'm a product of the bilingual and ESL um, programs in my area. And so I was always the student that was sitting down doodling in the corner of my notebook that would always get in trouble <laughs> because that was looked upon as, oh my gosh, you're not paying attention, right? And so um, in my work with teachers later on, years later, um, I started analyzing this book, these books, but to my point, they were, some of them were very heavy to be able to, you know, read through and memorize all of the wonderful information that were embedded within. So my outlet was to be able to doodle or draw and connect it to the information so that I could remember it and support teachers and, and administrators along the way. Um, and so that's my approach to a lot of the sketch notes that I do. Um, for those of you that don't know, sketch noting, um, also referred to as visual note taking, is a mix of um, hand drawings or handwritings, drawing shapes, 
uh, to be able to make meaning. I love it because it's a creative and individual process that I'm also advocating be a part of, you know, the classroom and the strategies that teachers are utilizing in the classroom. And so um, the cool thing about this book is that every book, like was mentioned, had a specific metaphor. And so really wanting to read the chapter and synthesize it, um, that's what you'll see in the front cover as you open up um, the book to hopefully hook you in and you know, identify all of the wonderful things that you're gonna be encountering um, as it relates to strategies, as it relates to topics that are gonna be covered in the book. Yeah, I always, when I read the book, I always sat with the visual first to say, okay, what is this chapter gonna be about, right? There was always a collection of images and words. And I was like, as, as a multilingual, like we depend upon visuals. As humans, we just depend upon visuals. And it was a wonderful way to just look. And sometimes I would go back and I would say, oh, I see why she drew this picture. Yeah, so you have five chapters, you have five metaphors. Would you, can you just briefly uh, list them and then maybe talk about one or two in a little more depth? Yeah, so when you open the book, um, chapter one really focuses on establishing your why. And so um, the image that um, was created was students leaving a space of the, co uh, the COVID world, right, and entering a new dimension. Um, so you'll see the, the interesting thing about my sketch notes that I hear repeatedly is that it's a movie, right? It's like a movie where, you know, you might love a movie and you watch it two, three, four, five times. And every time you watch it, you identify something new. <laughs> As you mentioned, Tan, like, oh, now that I read this part, now I understand the connection that Claribel made. Um, chapter two is all about amplifying the talents, the spirits, and personal powers of multilingual learners. So you'll be able to see uh, the diversity represented via a garden um, and be able to really analyze that we're all very different coming into this uh, from different perspectives. And so um, really focusing on the individual part of, of a person, right? We're not going to just combine all of them together and they're all the same. Um, Multilingual learners are not a monolithic group, right? So we have to re really be able to identify their needs and be able to celebrate that. Um, chapter three is all about recalibrating the curriculum um, to accel uh, accelerate learning for multilingual learners. So um, I focused based on the um, analogy or the metaphor that was given, um, the idea of a GPS, right? Uh, traveling and, and guiding you wherever you go. Um, and then very quickly, um, chapter four, uh, looking at autonomy, agency, and resilience is uh, a palette, um, a paint palette to be able to, to paint a different world for the students, right? They're all coming from a different perspective um, and they all need different things, right? So giving them the, the, the focus and you know being able to identify what it is that they need. So that was, uh, that was a, a very cool metaphor to be able to draw. And then the last one, harnessing the power connections and relationships. Um, the metaphor for this one was the idea of an ecosystem. So you'll be able to see at the in the beginning, um, again, really looking at um, where these students are and you know where we are as educators to be able to support them further. Um, at this point, Andrea, Maria, Audrey, Carrie, please expand on your metaphors. Um, it was really nice to be able to be inspired as reading the chapters to connect to what the authors were really thinking about as they were writing and to be able to illustrate it um, in such an awesome way. So as we started our conversation with the Arundhati Roy quote, the Indian novelist who used the portal metaphor, we thought that there are just so many other me metaphors that capture our current experience. While the portal metaphor was extremely powerful, we thought, what if we put our heads together and started brainstorming and figuring out a chapter opening metaphor for all of our chapters? So the metaphors were co-created in a collaborative fashion and we truly appreciated how Claribel added the artistic angle and we went back and forth in this collaborative process of sharing our ideas and inviting her to capture that in, a, in an artistic way. So that's our process. That was our process. 
Yeah, it's one of so I've read almost every book that you and Maria have written and Audrey have written together, the ones that you've written. And I'm always like, oh, this is a very distinct distinct book because it now has a vi like a, a visual that anchors each chapter. So this might be a trend in the future. <laughs> well, it was very different from anything else that we wrote ever before because the metaphor is fully elaborated on. So we felt more creative and more artistic. And with Claribel's participation, definitely our voice was further elevated into this artistic um, context that we're so appreciative of. And um, I think it's going to be a long-term relationship. We already have, if we are allowed to say that, we have another book coming out with Claribel's illustrations. And that's going to be later on in October or November of 2021 on collaborative planning. Uh, you are your your team. You're, everyone from like uh, Malloy is like a book a month, apparently. Maybe so, a book a year. I don't think we could write a book a month. But the unique feature of this book was that Corwin Press invited us to participate in their Agile publishing program, which was um, targeting very current, very urgent topics to be published in an expedited process. So indeed. If we may share that with our listeners or with your listeners, as a team, we wrote this book in six weeks. Now, the research, of course, has been done for months and years leading up to it. And we were only able to write this book that fast because we collaborated. So we were practicing what we've been preaching in many of our other books. And certainly the production process and Clary Bell's participation required another few weeks but the manuscript was finished in about six weeks. So we've never done this before. And I don't know if we're going to ever do this again, but the process was so affirming. We literally were living and breathing this book every single day for six weeks, dreaming about it, thinking about it. The first time we woke up in the morning and it was just about the most rewarding professional experience that I've ever had. So I wanted to publicly thank this entire team to take a risk. As Claribel said, we took a risk with you, you took a risk with us, and we each took a risk taking on this um, task. But we're very, very proud of the outcome. Before I end with the final thing, I just I did want to say the I wrote down the word urgency. And I think our field, we've been always talking about equity without naming it. Everything we've been doing is about like, yes, these kids can, yes, they're able to, and so are their families. No, they're not limited. Yes, they deserve to be in your classes. Yes, they deserve to have the same curriculum. No, they don't deserve to be in a different school. It's all about equity. We've all been pointing to it, everything we've been doing. And now really with this book, you get to say it very clearly. And that's the urgency here, because no more inequitable experiences for multilinguals. So I'll end with this, my prayer. I always start my podcast, people don't know this, but before I click at enter, I always say, may this serve kids I will never meet. What is your prayer for this book? So think about, so I'll just give you a few seconds to think like, you're going to say, imagine you are at a bookseller and there are people, there are teachers lining up and saying, I read your book, I read your book. Can you write a dedication to me? What would you write the dedication to these teachers? What would you say, my prayer for you with this book is? My prayer is that teachers and educators, administrators around the world start to really think about the personal power of multilingual students and their communities. That's my prayer. My prayer is that this book will inspire educators to examine and change their practices for the sake of multilingual learners. Is you presented this final question as an opportunity for us to write something as a dedication in a book. My prayer would be that of gratitude. Whenever I have the opportunity to sign a book for a teacher, for an educator, I always thank them for what they are doing every day in service of multilingual learners. So I'd like to express my tremendous gratitude for every teacher who is a champion of this population and for all children.
So connected to what Andrea is saying, really thinking about the teachers that are grabbing onto these books and saying, yes, this is what I've been saying the whole time, right? So my prayer for you is that with this book, you can feel seen, heard, and it'll give you the words to be able to continue to advocate and ultimately transform education. And my prayer is that this book opens the door in front of us and closes the door behind us. And we step into a new realm of possibilities and, and open to all of the successes and shining aspects of our kids. And we all are able to see that and embrace that and be part of it. I think there are prayers being heard and answered right now. So thank you for gracing us with your presence, your wisdom, and your love. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things at work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. I really enjoyed this book and the conversation because it reminded me that we cannot look away from these inequities, especially because we are advocates of multilinguals. Their book urges us to adopt an urgency for equity and shares manageable steps we can take to create a more equitable learning environment for multilinguals and their families. Like Dr. Carrie McDermott said in her prayer, it's time to close the door on the past and open the door to a more equitable tomorrow. In the next episode, we will return to our collaboration series. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.